No. Compromise. Radio. My name is Mike Abendroth. Glad you're tuned into the show. Today, real time, is February 16th, 2024. And this year has probably a lot in store for many of us. Some of us know what's ahead. Some of us don't know what's ahead. Well, all of us don't know all the details of what's ahead. But my daughter Haley is expecting baby number two. That means grandpa number two. And my son Luke's wife Hannah is expecting baby number one. So that makes baby grandbaby number three. It's about time. <laughs> it's about time. I have some there. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. So today, I'd like to start off with a little story that I read, a little illustration, and I took the liberty to change it some, just so you don't think I made it up on my own, that I, I just came up with it on my own. I found an illustration, and then I'm changing it. I think what I'm going to have to do is the new book that I wrote on cancer, the cancer's not your shepherd. I need to run it through one of those plagiarism deals <laughs> to make sure I didn't plagiarize. I'm, I'm, I don't know about the other books. Uh, I might know about the other books. I never intentionally plagiarized anything. Maybe I didn't give a quote someplace. Oh, I called uh, uh Harry Ironside, in my first book, in the footnotes, it says Henry Ironside. <laughs> so I'm just giving you fair warning. I found the illustration. Now I changed it. There was a cruise ship. And it was out, and a man fell overboard. Lots of rescuers were on the deck, looking at the man and shouting. The first man shouted was a moralist. He reached in his briefcase, pulled out a book on how to swim. He tossed it to him and yelled, Now, brother, you read that and just follow the instructions and you'll be all right. <laughs> the man next to him was an idealist. He jumped in the water and began swimming all around the drowning man saying, Now, just watch me swim. Do what I do and you'll be okay. <laughs> The third person next to him happened to be a member of the institutional church. He looked on the drowning man's plight with deep concerns. He yelled out, now just hold on, friend. Help is on the way. We're going to establish a committee and dialogue your problem. And then if we have come up with proper financing, we'll resolve your dilemma. <laughs> Another man happened to be a positive thinker. He yelled out to the drowning man, Friend, this situation is not nearly as bad as you think. Think dry. Oh, the last, no, oh, next to last man was a revivalist. He saw the man, drowning man waving his arm. The revivalist yelled, Yes, brother, I see the hand. Is there another? Is there another? And finally, the last man on the deck was a rescuer. He jumped in the water, pulled the victim to safety, died saving the man. 
There you have it. What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> you want answers? I, I do. Can. I do. I want answers. I want the truth. I want the truth. Now, how do I seg that, segue that into what I want to talk about today? <laughs> In the Gospel of Luke, you are not going to see Jesus the moralist. You are not going to see Jesus the idealist. You are not going to see Jesus the positive thinker. You are not going to see... Jesus, the revivalist, you're going to see Jesus, the Savior. Luke chapter 4. As you know, I've been working through Luke 4, and we're in a section today that's very fascinating. Jesus is going to encounter an unclean demon. Now, when I think of demons, pretty much I put them all in the category of unclean. But for whatever reason, when Luke talks about demons, he never talks about demons as being unclean, although they are. But he never uses the modifier except in our passage today in Luke 4, 31 and following. So that's what I'm going to talk about a little bit today. And probably next time, too, about demons. Can Christians be demon-possessed? Oppressed? How do you cast a demon out if you can? What do you do if you meet a demon-possessed person? Et cetera. All right. Ready? Ready or not? feel like it's a Fuji song. Ready or not, here I come. Is that it? Is that what they do? So what's happening? Jesus is going around his hometown preaching, right? He's been in Nazareth, and now he comes down to Capernaum, literally down. It's about 2,000 feet down from Nazareth to Capernaum. You've got 1,300 feet above sea level in Nazareth and minus 600 sea of Galilee. Capernaum, they were astonished at his teaching for his word-possessed authority. In this section here... Unlike the previous section in Nazareth, it's going to be received more positively. It's more of a, as some writers say, more of a positive tone. Uh, lots of happening, lots of happenings in this section. And what we've got is probably two full days compressed into this narrative. Squoze and squeezed and squuzzed down into two days. And of course, Jesus like was his custom, goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he teaches. And he is in Capernaum now. And if you go to the synagogue in Capernaum, it's a second century synagogue and maybe it's built right on the first century site. And you'll get an idea of what the layout is in terms of Sea of Galilee, how far Nazareth is away, where's Mount Hermon from there, uh, what part of the northern side of Sea of Galilee is it on, and Jesus is in Capernaum. And of course, Mark says that Simon, Andrew, James, and John are with Jesus. Capernaum is a little fishing village. Romans were there. Lots of travel. Probably a few thousand people were there in Jesus' time. And he's teaching in the synagogue. And to have a synagogue, you just needed 10 married men. Right? You've got the destruction of the temple of Babylon, and now you have synagogues where people would regularly meet. No sacrifices in a synagogue. Some said no singing in a synagogue, but they were meeting in a synagogue. And as we talked about before, a typical service, and you'd <laughs> That scared me. 
What is that? What in the world is that? I don't, that is that's really scary. I, I don't I don't know what I'm going to end up doing. Wow. Who got Chaco? That's scary. Oh, Jesus, as was his custom, goes and starts to teach. Now, remember, there was a Torah reading, there was a prophet's reading, and then there was a sermon after that. So I would imagine, just like in Nazareth, because men were free to teach in the synagogue, that's what Jesus did. And the response was astonished his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Unlike the last situation in Nazareth when he was preaching and he uh, expounded Isaiah 61, they tried to push him off the brow of a cliff. Here, they're astonished because he's teaching with authority. Mark says they're amazed. They're, it's like they got the wind knocked out of them. It's just so amazing. And if you listen to Jesus, you would have the same reaction. You are overwhelmed. You are out of your senses. You are amazed at his teaching. And for what reason are you amazed? Because he teaches with authority, not as the scribes. Not just what he says, but how he says it. And back in those days, kind of like even today, you would quote people. Rabbi so-and-so said this, scrab, scribe, scrabi. <laughs> so tired, scrabi. Oh, scrabi? What's a scrabi? Who even knows what scrabi is? I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> Rabbis, scribes, Pharisees for that matter, they all would quote other rabbis, other scribes, other Pharisees. Make sense? Yes, makes sense. Help me somebody. I need to make it no compromise in trouble. Right there. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that was an amazing help, by the way. Tell I'm so old because I still call it an album. It's a bunch of digital X's and O's and ones and zeros, Boolean algebra and such. Besides the scribes and Pharisees, very legalistic, uh, teaching according to tradition, Jesus simply says things. That's how he has authority. He just says it. He doesn't have to quote anything. Of course, Jesus says things like truly, truly, or verily, verily, amen, amen. Jesus says things like truly, I say to you. Jesus teaches in a way with authority, such as you have heard, but I have said to you, right? He didn't even, he's not quoting, he's not quoting rabbis. He could be quoting the Old Testament, that's fine. And he could be just saying things because while he can quote chapter and verse, which is apropos, he is chapter and verse. He is Logos. He is the Word incarnate. He is the eternal Son. And contrast Jesus' teaching to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Of course, remember in, in James, uh, John rather, you've got all these legalists and Jesus shows up and the first miracle he does uh, in the Gospel of John, and the first miracle he does anywhere, is turning 
water into wine. And it's a slap in the face to these legalistic people. And that's another sermon for another day. They were shocked when Jesus preached. The closest I can think of to a modern-day example is if you watch America's Got Talent or American Idol or something like that, you'll see people that'll walk out on stage uh, demurely, uh, quietly, kind of nerdy, just body type that might not make you think they're a singer, facial expressions that maybe they look like backwoods people. I I mean, they just look different. Of course, we all look different. Different. And then they start singing, and then they show the judges' faces. That's what we're talking about here, except even more. Not like the teachers of the law. Not like the rabbis. Not like the scribes. Inherent authority, Jesus has. And, of course, words of grace, as we saw last time. Words of grace grace, not the legalism of the scribes, traditions. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he's got authority, not just in his teaching, but he's got authority in his person. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, ha, what have you do? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. So Jesus is in the synagogue. He's teaching. Somebody's demon-possessed. And the demon takes over the vocal cords of the man and screams out, Megaphone, megaphone, literally in the Greek cries out, like burst on the scene. I don't think he ran in there. He was already there. There was a man who had a spirit in the synagogue. This is not psychosis, psychotic, diseases, syndromes, illnesses. This is real demon possession. And as one resource says, demons are spirits, they are intelligent, they cause blindness, they cause illness, they cause insanity, they can control the mind, they can control speech, they can cause dumbness, they are many, they are vicious, they are wicked, they cause suicidal tendencies, and they have natural, supernatural strength. So the question really is, as you're watching all this, does Jesus have the power over demons? Is Jesus superior to cosmic forces and invisible armies that are wicked? When Satan attacks and when demons attack, will Jesus survive? I mean, he's truly human. Oh, he's more than truly human, but they're going to attack him. And they begin to scream out with emotion. The evil, unclean spirit. Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's a reason why this miracle is first. So you can see that Jesus has power over demons. That should be a big deal to you. 
And this demon says, let me alone. With surprise, possibly. Indignation, indignation, certainly. Displeasure, yes. One writer said it, it amounts to a diabolical screech. Demons, along with Satan, hate Jesus. They hate the gospel. They hate preaching. They hate worship. And so they're going to cause a fuss. And literally, what do you have to do with us? What do you have to do with us? We have nothing in common. There's no fellowship with light and darkness. No harmony with Christ and Belial. Get out of our face. Leave us alone. Get out of here. What to us and to you? This idiom is quit bothering us. Uh, stay out of your business, our, our business. It's hostile. Leave me alone. What do the demons know? Did you ever ask that question? What do they know? Well, they say Jesus of Nazareth. They knew his identity. Who knows why they called him Jesus of Nazareth? Maybe people think there are other people named Jesus and this particular Jesus of Nazareth, so they properly identify him. Or sometimes some commentators might think, well, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, you're, we know exactly who you are and you're kind of on our team too. Trying to get the other people to think that. Trying to get Jesus in trouble. Trying to get a lot of people to come and bypass the plan of Jesus, right? On occasion, Jesus would say, don't tell anybody. Uh, you know, I've got, I've got a different plan here. They knew Jesus' power and mission. Have you come to destroy us? It doesn't say you don't have any power over us, but have you come over to destroy us? You've got power, that's certain. Eternal fire has been prepared for the devils and his angels. We're going to go there one day. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the fire, lake of brimstone, lake of fire and brimstone, excuse me, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Not annihilation, but doom. Matter of fact, Jesus came to do this very thing. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And the demons also knew that Jesus was God, the Holy One of God, definite article. The Holy One. Remember, holy means certainly no sin, and there's no sin in Jesus. They knew that. But also set apart. Set apart for what? Set apart for God. Set apart for God's mission. Sending Jesus. The one whose name is holy, Isaiah 57, 15. We know who you are. You're the Old Testament messianic fulfillment. The Holy One of Israel, 31 times in the Old Testament. I mean, if you were sitting there, you were watching all this as a congregant in the synagogue, what must you be thinking? I know who you are. I know you're the Savior of sinners. I know you're sent by the Father. Maybe this Demon just knew it. Maybe it was relayed to him. Maybe there was somebody in the synagogue in Nazareth that relayed what was going on there. Jesus was sent to fulfill Isaiah 61 and 58. And Jesus rebukes and he says, be quiet. No more demon testimonials. It's time to come out of him. There's only one preacher here and it's not going to be you. I don't need any endorsements from a demon same language used when Jesus awoke in the boat and rebuked the wind on the Sea of Galilee. He said to the sea, peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was great calm. Exact same language. Be still. Obey me. Power and authority in teaching. Power and authority over the demons. Be quiet. Be muzzled. I'm not going to align myself with you. 
throwing himself into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. That's what Mark says, the parallel account. KJV and Mark says the spirit had torn him. Howling, screeching, the demon comes out in the middle of everybody. Ask yourself the question, what did Jesus not do? No candles, no chants, no Latin, no incense, no formulas, sternly rebuking. And then this man is thrown into a crazy fit. Remember, it's on the Sabbath. I bet you this is going to be used against him sometime, somewhere. So what's the point? What's the point on no-co today? Pastor, what's the point? This is the first miracle given in the gospel of Jesus according to Luke. Not his first miracle he ever did. We'll, uh, we know that's John chapter 2, water into wine. But why would Luke want this to be your first miracle, his first miracle? As some writers say, this is a signal miracle. This is a miracle that says, oh, hello, introduction to miracles, demons. Now, we don't really maybe think demons are that big of a deal here. But here we have Jesus, the cosmic Lord, powerful over demons. You, the reader, should be amazed. That's true. You, the listener, should be Marveling, that's true, but you should also be something else, comforted. You should have assurance that demons bow to Jesus. If Jesus is powerful over demons, he's powerful over anyone else, everyone else, all else. And it means you ought not to fear demons. You ought not to fear Satan because, Christian, you're safe. This should give you confidence. No wonder Paul could say in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Yes, that makes so much more sense now. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, right? You've got standing with the belt of truth fastened, and you've got the breastplate of righteousness and shoes at your feet, a shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit. That's what the Messiah comes loaded with. Isaiah 11, 49 and 59. The armor of God is the armor of Christ Jesus. And so when Satan is prowling around trying to devour we know that the God of all grace who has called you to this eternal glory in Christ will re himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So take heart, Christian. Be safe. You're sealed, safe, secure, owned, protected. That's language of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Jesus is your armor. He's your shield. He's your savior. He's your protector. He's your powerful redeemer. You can trust him. You don't have to be afraid. If Jesus has power over demons, he has power over everything. Your life, your future, your country, your church, your health. Don't buy Satan's lies. That somehow he's the exact polar opposite in power to God. No, he's a created being. We also say Jesus is powerful over demons too. You ought to be thinking about Jesus, the truthful one. 
So don't buy Satan's lies that somehow Christian God is mad at you and you've sinned your way out of the kingdom and holy living's not important and get your eyes off of Jesus. Look for grace and favor outside of Jesus. Earn God's favor on your own. There's so many lies. Don't buy any of those and don't fear. Demons exist today, but we don't see much activity anymore because the majority of activity was Jesus is on the earth. Ask yourself the question, how many demons did you see in all the Bible outside of the time of Jesus? Ahab's prophets, Saul, Philippian servant girl, sons of Sceva. Can you think of others? But when Jesus is on earth, there's an all-out, full, frontal assault. So that's one of the reasons why we don't see him these days. Plus, they're behind the scenes teaching doctrines of demons, as 1 Timothy chapter 4 says. Not about demons, but from demons. The subject isn't demons, but the, but the topic is demons. Men who forbid marriage. Who's behind that? Demons. Men who advocate abstaining from foods. Who's behind that? Demons. Which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Somehow thinking two great gifts of God, marriage and food, you can't have those. Demons are trying to get people to be idolaters, sacrificing to demons, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, causing jealousy and ambition, leading to division, James chapter 3, warfare. And so they're demons today, that's true. What power do we have over them? Can Christians be possessed? That, my friend, is for another time. My name is Mike Avendroth. This is No Compromise Radio Ministry.